We're starting off the day by acknowledging perhaps the most under-recognized professionals in public radio, though ironically the people who may have everything to do with the success of any radio story you hear in a given day. This is a group that collectively labors tirelessly late into the night, shaping narratives, nabbing maverick punctuation where it shouldn't be, pointing out huge gaps in logic, and all with the aid of the infamous red pen, you know I'm talking about the editors in our lives. Although their contributions may seem invisible, their efforts toward the end result of producers' efforts are invaluable. The producer-editor relationship is a tricky one, but a crucial one, all the same. Today we'll hear from a couple of producing producer-editor teams about the process of working together and about why this specific collaboration is so important to the health of any radio story. Here to lead us through this is discussion is someone who's probably had her fair share of editing and being edited, not just in radio, but TV and print as well. Gwen Maxi started here in Chicago back in 1984 at BEZ, has worked with the Smithsonian and, at M- Smithsonian and at NPR, can still be heard on NPR from time to time. She wrote the unforgettable collection of essays, Lipstick, back in 2000, and she's one of the creators of the sitcom, What About Joan? So... A, a Gwen of many trades. Um, Gwen moved back to Chicago to be near her family and also, whether she knew it or not at the time, to host the Third Coast Festival's weekly show, Resound, which we're having a blast with. Um, it's on every week on Sundays here in Chicago. So please welcome Gwen and John Bewin, Emily Botine, Deb George, and Ben Shapiro for Trust Me, I'm an Editor. First... A story. In the early 90s, I was doing some essays and commentaries for NPR, and I had written one, and by way of background, one of the lines in the piece, it was about being single and lamenting lack of human companionship, and one of the lines in the piece was, you make more frequent hair appointments just to be touched by the shampooer. (laughs) And I was to do an edit, with someone I'd never edited before, with before, and uh, I go into her office to read it to her, which is a horrifying experience if you're reading something that's supposed to be humorous. In a one-on-one situation, you know, the sweat is starting to build up, and your heart is racing, and you re- I read the piece to her, and it was just complete silence. Not a laugh. Not a smile, not even a smirk. And she looks up at me as soon as I'm done, and and she says, it's not funny. I I, I just don't get it. And I was like, oh, okay, 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 okay. Um, uh, Let's just start with something I can hang my hat on. What don't you get? Like, what don't you get? She said, okay, okay, here, this line, this line. You make more frequent hair appointments just to be touched by the shampooer. I mean, why don't you just make it, you make more frequent hair appointments. <laughs> and uh, I, I was so just, uh, I, I had uh, nothing to say. I just was like, okay, you really don't get it. Um, and I, I just didn't even know what to say. And fortunately, at that moment, her phone rang, and she took this phone call, and I kind of skulked out of her office, wandering the halls, going like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And 
a few minutes later, she came up to me and she found me and she pulled me aside and she said, you know, it's fine. Just do it as it is. Just don't change a thing. And I looked at her and I'm like, and she goes, I'm going through a divorce. (laughs) And I was like, okay, (laughs) I'll take it where I can get it. (laughs) Um, And I'm telling you this story not to air the um, two-decade-old sour grapes that I have about that experience, but to illustrate just how delicate that editor-producer relationship can be. Of course, I do want to go on record as saying that I have had wonderful, wonderful relationships with many editors, and um, there's just nothing funny about that. So I didn't want to talk about that. Um, We are going to spend the next hour and a half talking about the editor-producer relationship, what it's all about, how it can improve, what it really needs to be to be the most successful. And we have four very esteemed panelists who I want to introduce to you um, in, I suppose, order. Uh, Ben Shapiro is a radio and Emmy Award-winning television producer whose TV work has appeared on PBS, National Geographic, and HBO, among others. His radio work includes producing and editing documentaries, as well as editing The Next Big Thing and also working with Joe Richman on Radio Diaries. Um, Let's see, he's also going to be producing this year's Third Coast Festival broadcast, Ben Shapiro. Um, Deb George, sitting next to him, has done some of everything. She most recently was the senior editor of American Radio Works. She spent 15 years at NPR as producer of Weekend Edition Sunday and is an editor on the National Foreign and Cultural Desks. She was NPR's first liaison with for independent producers. Poor thing. She's also had numerous awards to her name, including the RFK, that's Robert F. Kennedy Award, and an Edward R. Murrow Award. She's also working with Joe Richmond as an editor of his series. He gets the best, as you can see. John uh, Emily Botine, next to Deb, is a senior contributor to The Next Big Thing. She's been with that show since its inception, working in many different capacities. Before that, she was a freelance producer and a cook at a four-star restaurant in New York. John Bewin, on the end, is a producer and correspondent with American Radio Works and Radio Programs Director at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. He's produced hundreds of news and feature reports and historical documentaries. For a time, he was a staff reporter at NPR and has won two Robert F. Kennedy Awards, among many others. So I give you the panel of esteemed experts. Um, The first thing we want to talk about seems very, very basic, but you'd be surprised how many different expectations are out there. And I want to talk to um, Deb and Ben specifically about how they perceive their roles as editors. If you don't know, um, John and Deb work as a team for the most part. Um, Deb's done a lot of editing with John as a reporter, and Emily and Ben work together as a team quite a bit. Um, so we're going to be talking to their experience, uh, to them about their experiences as a team and also just in general. But I want to start with the editor's role because as many of you probably know, a lot of different people think it's a lot of different things. So how do you perceive your role? Do you want me to start? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I think y- years ago, and I think it was Nina Ellis, and I don't know if Nina's here, But Nina defined the role of the editor for National Public Radio as being uh, the advocate. 
being the advocate for the listener and making sure that the listener had everything that they needed in order to fully understand and appreciate the story. And and that, to me, is still one of the central uh, ideas behind the role of the editor and, and something that I totally agree with. But I also think that there's a corollary, and I think that that is that the role of the editor is to enter into a collaboration with the producer and the reporter, and that collaboration changes. Uh, it can take, it can, it can change from producer to producer. But I think there are probably three main uh, main things. Uh, the first and the best is that you are a friend, uh, hopefully a wise friend. Mm-hmm. And you, you listen and you discuss and you discuss the finer points and the, the whole philosophy behind the story. And, um, and that's a, it's a really, it's a really deep and satisfying relationship. Um, sometimes you're, you're a coach and a mentor and a teacher. And, and that also can be a really, really satisfying experience when you're working with somebody who, you're, you're helping them to to be the best that they can possibly be. Hopefully, you're helping them to get to another level in terms of their reporting and producing. Uh, and then the third is something that is not quite as pleasant, maybe, but it's often very necessary. And that is to the the, the very traditional role of the editor as you know Perry White, the authoritarian editor. Um, and uh, and especially especially if you're working on deadline and you're working on news, then then that's that's the editor that has to take over sometimes. Um, and you know, dictating, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and we're going to get it on the air. <laughs> so uh, that, that, that's sort of my general sense of what I try to do as an editor. Yeah, I, I think that's those are all. Um it's all well put. Um, and, I mean, it, ultimately, um, our job as editors is to make the strongest piece possible or help the producer make the strongest piece possible. Um, and there's something that's interesting that goes on with editors and producers, which is I've, I've done, been in situations where I've edited people who have also edited me uh, when I was producing. And simply the fact that, and, and, it's, and it's a peer relationship, and simply the fact that someone else can listen to your piece with a fresh set of ears, I think, is also a key part of it, really. Um, uh, along with what Deb said about the audience, I think the, the, the editor is the first audience for your piece, often. Um, and also, to some extent, I feel like, um, especially with producers who are more experienced, I can be somewhat of a, like an auxiliary brain for them. Um, I can just come with a fresh set of ears... Um, I can hear it in a way that they can hear it. Um, and I can just also help provide another, um, some other place, some other space, brain space, to do thinking about how a piece is working, what it might do, that's uh, distinguished from the experience of going out and reporting and cutting the piece itself. And, I mean, that, but that varies depending on the level of the producer you're working with. I mean, some of the people I work with are kind of people like, are, are very experienced, and some of them are less experienced. 
And people who are less experienced, um, it, it tends to be more the case that you're uh, suggesting things to them along the process, um, helping them move forward in their process in ways when they get stuck. Um, so in a sense, you are kind of a facilitator of the production process that is focused at the, the end result of having a piece that is structured as effectively as it can be. Um, I, some people, I think, especially if you're working in news, think of an edit as, you know, you go out, you collect your tape, you come back, you cut it, you write your script, you have it almost ready to go, you go do an edit and you go on the air. And that might be uh, sufficient for things that are, have very fast turnaround or hard news pieces. But um, I, I'm curious about these two teams. There's also, do you, do you go into a story talking about it before you even collect any tape? Is it the case where, I mean, at what point is, it, is the editor, in your guys' cases, coming into the mix? Is it something that you think about before you go out, or is it something that you come back, you report, or you don't even see them until the script is mixed, until the script is written and done? Um, John, do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, in in our case, and Deb has edited most of the work I've done over the last five years or so. Um, she is is involved from the very beginning, from conception, and um, we we have a process with American Radio Works of you know this process of pitching an idea, and there's conversations about it before we even decide to do it. And Deb um, Deb uh, is involved at that level, and then basically from from there on, there are conversations about. You know, when I'm going off to do some reporting and, you know, we're, we're usually talking pretty regularly and I'm going to do this and here's what I hope to get out of this trip or here's what I'm hoping to record and uh, get back how to go. And, and it doesn't, it, ha- it isn't in great detail uh, usually about, you know, I don't send her my transcripts or that right. sort of thing. But, but there's always just a conversation. Well, how did you, get, did you get some good stuff? Yeah. And, you know, maybe a brief anecdote or two of what I thought was the better stuff. And so that she's always just sort of up to up to speed on on what I'm getting and where this thing is heading. And we have these conversations about, uh, you know, and the the project may evolve some as you go about how you're focusing it or how you're putting the thing together. And that's that's a that's two heads are involved in that all all the way along. What about you guys? Do you guys do that as well, or do you come into it later? I would say we certainly try to do that. Um, and particularly, Ben and I are often working with one other person, an outside producer, which could be one of you. And the more we do it, the more helpful it is, especially um, when it's a piece that sort of seems like it could be tricky or it seems like, you know, there's one point that we really want the piece to say and the outside contributor may be getting that, maybe not. Um, what comes to mind is we did a piece... Uh, with a, a, right, a non-radio reporter, a written reporter about Ivory um, immigrants from the Ivory Coast in Philadelphia. And Ben and I were looking through emails that we had written to him before we came here. And it was interesting. And the, before we started the piece, we kept saying, you know, it's really important that the, this tension comes out. And we just had all of this back and forth because there's basically, it's Ivory Coast immigrants who are now living in Philadelphia and sort of the internal strife between that com- in that community, in Philadelphia, not in the Ivory Coast. And even though we had sort of established these ground rules for the peace, you know, even before we had done anything, in the end, you know, even having a contract doesn't necessarily, or I mean a contract, 
a written, doesn't necessarily sort of assume that that's going to happen in the piece. I wouldn't say the piece was a huge success, but it's really important to try to sort of spell that out. I, I mean, ideally, it would have that would have worked in that circumstance because we had kind of talked about it beforehand. In it, um, I mean, I think we're going to talk about structure later, I guess. But I mean, e- even talking about it from the beginning of conceptualizing a piece is, I think, maybe a good editor, hopefully, from the from the beginning, can have some sense of what the structure might be and kind of what the elements along the way of the story you'll need to have probably to tell your story or at least help make an educated guess so that you know you can get kind of these the plot points covered so to speak of you know things you you might need to make turns in the story or set up certain things or pay off certain things in the story and then I, then I would say with just that John and Deborah is that you may have written something but that can change yeah. i mean but right. you've set something out and then just to inform everyone as it changes. Right. And, I, and the other thing I think that is really helpful to talk about beforehand is, is not just what the story is, what, what kind of story are, are we trying to tell, but, but a little bit about let's, let's talk about style and tone a little bit and maybe, you know, we're not going to make the decision right now, but let's talk about some possibilities. Maybe we'll do something a little different with this story. Um, you know. Uh, and, and that conversation will continue down the road until it becomes clear what's the best way to tell this story. And in the kind of, sort of the nature of the kind of work that we do, it sort of tends toward the journalistic, but we're trying to do documentary work, and so that often it, there's this conversation about, okay, so there's this issue we're going to do. That. We think it's important that there are X hundred thousand mentally ill people in prison in America and we're going to do something about that. Well, okay, but all right, what are our scenes? Who are our characters? How are we making this? You know, we're not just going to go out and talk to some experts and, and tell people this, these facts. Um, so then it becomes a conversation about how are we going to approach it to bring this thing to life. Okay, I'm like bubbling over with things I want to talk about, but um, this is such a perfect lead-in to, the, to uh, some tape that John and Deb brought about a, a piece that they were working on. You guys can set it up because it's a perfect example of, of exactly what we're talking about. Um, okay. Do you want to say something about Shall I? Um, the first Yeah, this is, this is a piece. Um, it's, it's, uh, this, it functioned in two ways. It was part of an hour uh, with, that had sort of several threads going through the hour, but it also then became its own 15-minute piece. Um, and it's a piece about a woman um, getting out of prison after seven years and um, the, the reason I brought this along, I thought it's, it's a good illustration of this, this two-person process, and, and this was really a piece that evolved, or sort of the way it got framed uh, evolved in the process. We knew that we wanted to do a piece um, about how tough it is to get out of prison, to not have a job, to have all the liabilities that you went into prison with, um, oftentimes, you know, um, lack of education, chemical dependency issues, that kind of thing. Now you're coming out of prison, you got all that stuff, and you got a prison record. And we wanted to sort of, but the first person we met in our, uh, or, um, in, as I approached the North Carolina prison system was, was, was somebody who, um, sort of didn't fit that. She was, uh, she had gotten her college degree in prison. She was a model citizen in prison. She had a job lined up before she left prison. Uh, but still, and, and so there was some conversation about, is this even the person, the right person for, for our story? 
but I, I did. I, um, I liked her. I, I was the main thing that she she was she was um, she had two sons who were two and four when she went to prison, and she was going to be getting out after seven years and sort of returning uh, to being the mother of these of these boys. Um, so anyway, but we did, we sort of waded into it, and I and it was reporting reporting was done over the course of a year, from a couple of days before her release until a year and a day after her release. And the first uh, clip is at the top of the piece, and it's just the the. Um, why don't we just we just hear it? Sergeant Jones, we're going back here now. Does someone need to um, escort us back? Most of the inmates at the Raleigh Correctional Center for Women wear the required blue-green shirt, sort of like the shirts surgeons wear. This day, Marcia wears jeans and a black sweater. She's a pretty, round-faced woman with shoulder-length hair. She's reserved and watchful, but today she wears a distinct glow. Today is Thursday, November 15, 2001. (laughs) It was a date I will never forget. Now, Marcia, in acceptance parole, I understand that the North Carolina Post-Release Supervision and Parole Commission may modify its terms. I also understand that I am under the legal custody of the Post-Release Supervision and Parole Commission. Besides meeting with her new parole officer, Marsha has to say goodbye to her closest (laughs) friends behind bars. It's a good day. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day to go home. Marsha's fellow inmates will tell you she's a sure thing to make it on the outside. She got her degree from Shaw University while in prison. Classmates in her job training course voted her most likely to succeed. Partly because she was such a model inmate, Marsha served just seven years of a 30-year sentence. Even before her release, she lined up a job with the Raleigh Housing Corporation. The job will pay $25,000 plus benefits. Marsha, God. I know, right? You ready? That's what's the first thing she's going to do. I thought, <laughs> she, you about she don't know. She don't know. She don't know anything. <laughs> I just want to go inside the of the grocery store and push a grocery cart and oh. let my sons pick out what they want. Marshall, you think you're nice? Yeah. Bye, baby. Uh, take care. I will. And you too. I will. In the name of Jesus, I will. Bye. Bye. And that's your gate check. See y'all later. I love y'all. <laughs> so, um, at this point, um, so that's the begin, you know, obviously the beginning of the reporting process as well. So some of that, there were some pieces of tape that had been recorded a couple of days early, and that sort of thing. But um, and I and I just sort of started to hang out with with her, and there and, and the, as the piece proceeds, you hear some of this uh, of her sons coming to visit her. She she's goes to a halfway house where she doesn't have um, custody of them right away. They're visiting, uh, st- still staying with her grandmother and visiting her every other weekend and. And so I went, you know, and I was trying to get to know the sons. And um, but as the as the thing proceeded, then there was a point at which um, I remember it just we got further along into the process and sort of thinking about it. And it became clear. Well, here's what we need to do, especially since we have an hour. Uh, we'll go out and find another subject that fits more of our sort of initial uh, vision for the thing. And Marsha's story will be about. Um, 
will be about her relationship to her sons. And 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 I'm just having that conversation with Deb, and I, I said, you know, here's what I think we ought to do. And then and then Deb said, yeah, and you know, then I think Michael becomes a bigger um, character. Michael is her older son. And how so far into the process was this? Months. Months. So you originally came, I mean, your idea was to do this, and months into it, you know, you heard something that shifted the whole focus of it, it sounded like. Yeah, and I, I at some point got to hear Michael for the first time, the uh, son, and I was just totally taken with him and thought, he's got to be a bigger part of the story. Huh. Okay. So the second cut that we're going to hear is... Curious. Oh yeah, go ahead. So, Johnny, do you, did you were you aware of how good the kid was when you were? Well, yes, and I was I was kind of pursuing him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I in fact I had given him a tape recorder and uh, a mini disc recorder, and actually Marsha as well. That's another whole kind of sub story to this is that is that um, I thought this piece might be kind of an audio diary piece, mm-hmm. but and and Marsha was willing to to take a recorder, and she said that she would record herself but she just never did i think she just wasn't i mean she was just being a single mom and and uh she had enough to do and she just never did it um and michael did a little bit of uh recording but uh mostly it was not fit for not fit for broadcast uh, we'll hear a little bit of his of of his he was he he was a he's a he's a rapper and we'll hear a little bit of that but but what he did for into the mini disc I gave him was mostly not fit for broadcast. Um, so when, and when, his mother was a little dismayed about that. So when Deb said, um, when Deb said, I think Michael needs to be a bigger part of the story. Right. Was it like a light went off yeah. for you as well? Would yeah. you have seen it without her? Um, well, I, I mean, think what, what it what the... it I think what it triggered. <laughs> I think it, it was really. Um, it's interesting, and in retrospect, it seems it's an it's 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 so obvious, mm-hmm. but. Um, I think it did it what it it triggered me to I he was going to be part of the story that was clear but I think it did prompt me for example the the the, the next scene opens with uh him at school and I think there were just things like that where just her saying that it was just like yes you're right and then we got to think about okay how do we how do we do that yeah. you know, and the thing that we knew about him I should say is that by this point the thing we knew there's these two sons Kyrie, who's two years younger, is just this sunny, happy kid. Everything seems to be fine. He was two when his mother and father went to prison. Um, this is a classic case of a, a father who's a drug dealer, and and the, she's married to the wrong guy, and is kind of there, and gets sentenced um, for being for his involvement in killing two people. But Kyrie's just fine. It seems Michael is is 11 and he's just he's there's just a real undercurrent of anger he's having trouble in school he's in the um he's in the alternative school for children with behavior problems, problems. um and uh and he's also uh he's he's got a pretty dynamic personality and he's a, so but but yeah i think it was just when deb said that i think it did prompt me to probably do more with him than i than i otherwise would have and, and, you know, I think that there's something of value in the fact that the editor most often doesn't meet the, the characters in the story. And just hearing them, I, I can hear things in their voices. I don't, I'm not, 
I'm not influenced by what they look like, by whether they smell good or bad, by whether, I mean, you know, I'm yeah. just listening to their voices. And they become real people to me, especially in long-form stories where I'm doing a lot of listening. But, but I do think that, that's, that there's, there's a valuable thing in that. Um, I, I'm not influenced by anything else. I'm not influenced by how much work it took to get, to get the person, uh, by how long you had to drive to do the interview. I'm just hearing that voice. All right, well, let's hear the second part of this is later in the piece, and this is what became a focus of the piece. We'll hear the second cut. All right, you got five minutes to do a warm up. Let's go. It's the fall of 2002. I'm Karen Hamilton, and I'm the principal at Longview School. It's a public separate school for identified special education children who have troubles with their behavior. Michael's pretty typical of most of our sixth graders. How are you going to tell me? Oh. Michael's generally non compliant, but that exceeds what you think about when everybody else was in school and folks talk back to teachers. For children to be here, that has to be something they do more often than not. You know how they made me? Is that it? Put you in your mouth. Shut up, dude. Shut up. Shut up, son. I'm Miss Victor, Rhonda Victor, special educator. I teach science. Michael, stay focused. Step two. There are days he'll sit and he'll suck his finger like a little baby and not say a word, but he, he's not willing to work. He's very into beating, you know, drums, and, and he enjoys that, but he takes that into the classroom, and he'll do that all period if I allow him to. So we're working on that. Most of Michael's middle school classmates in the alternative school have already been convicted of crimes, from alcohol possession to car theft to assault. Michael has not. Top of page 22, please. His teachers say he shows signs of trying to get control of his anger and his behavior. I had private thoughts of my own that I didn't share with them, so I made us even. Very good. Thank you, Michael. Kyrie, you did your homework. Kyrie's doing great. He's doing good in school. Hopefully when I get my hair on board. I have A's and B's, and I do my homework every day. It's November in Raleigh. Michael and Kyrie have been living with their mother for nine months. I'm glad, still happy that I'm here with them, but it's, it's a lot of challenges that I didn't anticipate. It's not just Michael's behavior. Marsha and the boys have been grieving, too. Just two weeks after Michael and Kyrie moved in with Marsha, their grandmother who'd taken care of them for seven years, died suddenly of a heart attack. She was just 49. I didn't really cry. Yes, she did. He cried. I cried, but I, I didn't cry. I didn't want to cry. But I, I've been around my grandma for so long, like almost my whole life. For a while, the boys slept with Marsha. They were too upset to sleep alone. Now they're supposed to be in after-school programs, but some days Michael just goes home to the empty apartment. Michael, huh? come here. You need to wash this pot and clean the stove off and let this water out. 
I think I'm about at the very end of my rope with him. He's been suspended again, and his grades are actually dropping. Basically, he's not really doing anything. You know what it is. I'm straight living it up. Got a black blueberry bitch in the back, straight killing it up. You know I've saying? asked him why he says he's bored in class. I'm real smart, but he just doesn't get along with a lot of kids or teachers and stuff. He just doesn't get along with people. I, I think a lot of it has to do with anger. I think he's very angry. He talks a lot about, you know, want, wanting his dad here and not really having anybody to, as far as a male to identify with. He talks about that some. And raps about it. Michael takes pride in his freestyling. He rattles off rhymes without writing them down. He says he's never rapped about his mom, but he will hey. rhyme about his hey. still-imprisoned father. Hey, I wish my dad should have never left. <laughs> hey, I'm shy, man. Alright, alright. Dad, I wish my dad should've never left. In the future, all I see is death. But I try to look past that and turn the other way. I crash that, smash that, put the nine away. As I get a little... <laughs> I can't do it. Okay, you looking forward to him getting out of prison? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I think is most crucial in an editor and uh, producer relationship is what happens when there's conflict. Because when you've been working on a piece and you feel very deeply about it and personally about it and you can get over-involved in it and uh, a fresh set of ears is always good, but it also can be um, difficult when they somebody wants to cut something out and you want it in or um, they, you know, there's there's a lot of things. And I'm wondering how you guys have, if you've had that and how you've dealt with it and how you know when to go to the mat for something and when to really fight for something, even though someone you might trust and respect, someone who you've been working with for many years, um, disagrees, plain and simple. And what happens when you're at a crossroads? Mm -hmm. what, you, what about you guys? Have you guys had that, have you had that problem? Well, I mean, Emily... Time to air the dirty yeah. laundry. <laughs> well, I'll say this about Emily. No. <laughs> um, we work together. We work... Uh, the, the show we've worked on most is The Next Big Thing, and it's a weekly show. And um, so sometimes there's just not a lot of time or kind of emotional resources to expend on uh, any given piece week to week. So, I mean, we will certainly have um, disagreements, but, I mean, we... Uh, probably because we just have to work together all the time and work, you know, have an ongoing working relationship getting the show out. Um, we need to find ways to resolve that without you know, butting heads, really, and it, it hasn't been difficult. Yeah, um, I mean, Emily, do you agree? No, I would, well, I mean, I would certainly say there are plenty of times where you want to say, oh, man, you know, I'm going to kill you. But, at the end, I mean, you have to, it's like a week, I mean, as Ben says, it's a weekly show. You're, you're, there's, like, going to be, I mean, there's always going to be a drama every week. So, you know, whether it's about one piece or, and you're doing one to three pieces. So it's just, you don't have that much time to have a, how much of your freak out is just going to take more time to you to get the piece done. Um, but we do have, should we play this yeah. piece of tape? We have, and I guess sort of what John and Deb were just talking about was sort of macro issues of a piece. We have sort of a very mini issue in a piece where um, 
This is a conversation between our host, Dean Olsher, and a bug scientist from Cornell named Tom Eisner. And basically what happened is um, I'd been working with a producer on our show, Jamie York, who had cut a version of the piece, and I was like, blah, blah, this is good. And then I heard a later version, and I was like, what happened? So let's hear uh, cut. And do, do you want to say why? What happened? I mean, in between those pieces, I had... Oh, right. Well, had, uh, of course, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, so let's listen yeah, to... So I had done an edit between the two. Right. So. so let's listen to three. With, no, the cut number three, which is what I heard. Do you use your ears when you're looking for insects? Or is it purely mm-hmm. visual and olfactory? It's visual, olfactory, it's after the fact. Visual a lot. I don't listen to sounds. Although I'm in mosquito country, and I start hearing buzzing around the ears, right. I, uh, I take action. <laughs> How do you keep up your enthusiasm? How old are you? 75. And you're still excited about insects as you were as a kid? Absolutely. I wish I understood that. Okay. So it's like Dean and this guy are walking around Central <laughs> Park. So uh, that was what I heard as the final version. So let's hear number four now. Do you use your ears when you're looking for insects? Or is it purely visual and olfactory? It's visual, olfactory, it's after the fact. Visual a lot. I don't listen to sounds. Although I'm in mosquito country, and I start hearing buzzing around the ears, right. I, uh, I take action. <laughs> because cause the other part of your life is involving music. I would yeah. have thought that somehow being a pianist that there would be skills that you brought to bear when you're investigating insects, but no, they're, they're unrelated activities. Unrelated activities. Uh-huh. Even when I go into the field, I carry an electronic keyboard with me. You do? Yeah. So you still play regularly? Not as much as I used to since I got Parkinson's. I'm not quite as proficient. It's, I can't tell from looking at you that you have Parkinson's. Well, it's fairly early stages, but, mm. but it's there. Um, so it, it keeps you from playing the piano as much as you want? It keeps me from playing the piano. keeps me from looking on the rocks and logs as much as I used to, so that the insects are better off with me in this condition. <laughs> How do you keep up your enthusiasm? How old are you? 75. And you're still excited about insects as you were as a kid? Absolutely. I wish I understood that. So you could hear the difference? It was a whole thing. So, so Ben, what was yeah. that all about? <laughs> Um, well, I, I mean, this is this may be an example of of, of trying to tighten up a piece too much. Um, and my feeling at the time was that the 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 he, his answer that little chunk there where he's talking about his music it doesn't really kind of pay off to the last little bit. I felt like it was too much time to kind of go into that within the context of the piece for that last little payoff. And then also the piece was in a way more about him as you know, this guy on this trip through Central Park looking at these bugs and stuff, and maybe a little less about his own personal struggles or pain with his disease. Um, now, having said that, I'm not sure, I mean, hearing it now, I mean, it got a laugh, um, that line, which is always a, a sign that maybe there's a, something good in that, and that maybe that should have stayed, or maybe we should have found a way to whittle that down so we could use that last little payoff line without having so much of that stuff before that. See, to me, it was just this really graceful way to say I have Parkinson's. And it, also the idea that the seven-year-old guy was like, 
going into the field with this electronic keyboard. It was like I had this whole visual <laughs> that took me away from Central Park and looking for bugs, which was sort of interesting, but sort of, it was kind of like, okay. I mean, it just wasn't that. I, I Mainly, I just loved the way he brought up Parkinson's. Like, I just happened to, and it was just like, oh. Um, the one thing that Ben said about this later when I was saying, you know, here's a place where we disagreed, was, well, the piece was kind of boring. And I thought, well, you know, that may be true. And so, you know, even though I was pushing for this little bit of tape, we also probably should have, I mean, you didn't hear the whole seven minutes or eight minutes or whatever. We probably should have shortened the whole piece. Yeah, it may have been a reflection of some larger kind of structural problems with the piece and with the tape that we were kind of... But, but Emily kind of made a case for that piece of tape, and I came around, basically. I, you know, I mean, the, the, so tape, the, went tape back went, in. the tape went back in, and I'd kind of, you know, okay, I, I, mean, I could see that was a valid point. The show also might have been short that week. <laughs> <laughs> Dad, did you want to I, I have an example that may appall um, some of you. Uh, and I'm, actually, I'm not sure what it says about me. Um, I was working with a, um, a reporter, an NPR reporter, and this was a big project for her. Uh, she'd been working on it for weeks. And it was going to be a, a long story, and it was on the next day. And late in the afternoon, we started doing an edit. And there was a section in the piece, in the middle of the piece, a fairly long section, that I just knew ruined the piece. I mean, it just stopped the it stopped it. it. But she loved it. She really, really loved it, really wanted to keep it in. And... Since we're collaborators, I I could not say to her, uh, I want you to take that out. So I think we finally, we talked until midnight. I mean, I think we started talking at 5 o'clock in the afternoon about whether or not this chunk, this scene should come out and hours and hours and hours and around midnight she conceded <laughs> and 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 it 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 left and it it aired the next day without it and the next day i got a bouquet of roses <laughs> from the reporter now now what that says to me is that I I was very invested in the piece being as good as as it could possibly be, and and I was very sure about this, and and I think that at times an editor has to be sure. Now you can say that it is it's the reporter's piece in the end, and they should have for a struggle like that they should have the final say. I would never dictate it to her, but I went to the mat and and spent hours convincing her. Maybe I just tired her out in the end, <laughs> but but I think you have to be sure. I think an insecure editor um, uh, doesn't work. Well, this totally gets at something that has always fascinated me because uh, I hate. I don't have the confidence to edit other people very well because I I always feel like, I mean, I see something and I'm like, oh, well, maybe it would be better this way, but maybe not. Like, and, and I and I think, how the hell do I know that I'm right? 
I mean, how do you know that you're right? It's not like anybody here has a PhD in editing. In fact, you know, most editors are just very experienced reporters. So how do you know that you're right? I mean, really, you, have, you seem to have a lot of confidence, but who the hell knows? <laughs> it's, it's all bluff. <laughs> I, th- I mean, I think we were talking about this yesterday. That yeah. I think you, you have a... Um, I think the two Wesleys have something of a predisposition to thinking about structure and recognizing that when you hear a piece. Um, and so a lot of things, a lot of things are, um, if not self-evident, I mean, the, the, for me, a lot of the problems are kind of self-evident as I listen. And then I have yeah. to think about what the issues are that make me feel like there's a problem there. And sometimes the solutions are clear and sometimes you have to take some, it takes some work. Um, but I'm usually aware just from listening to a piece that there are certain things and I'll either make mental notes about it as we go through to come back and address or you know, write things down. But um, It's like a that's, natural That's why man. we're editors. I, uh, um, I, was, I was reading uh, a year or so ago in the paper that they had found this gene that controls for grammar and syntax. <laughs> and, and, and if... And if Oh, I'm not a science person, so I don't. Uh, it, it's not if you don't have the gene, but if the gene is, you know, not operating. I mean, in other words, some people have in their brains grammar and syntax. Other people don't. You can never, if you don't have it, you're, you're not going to learn it. Um, and 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 I think that I have a gene for structure. And and uh, Brooke Gladstone and I were talking once because Brooke spent a lot of her career as an editor, and and still does edit on the media as well as host it. And 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 we both agreed that it's 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 uh, it kind of uh, uh, hits a sort of pleasure center in our brains to to kind of see that uh, if, if I'm listening to a piece, I can sometimes see two or three alternate structures for it and can pick it out. And I mean, I feel like one thing I had to learn when I was starting to edit was to um, pay attention to my own, uh, trust and pay attention to my own responses to pieces. Because, like, you're listening to a piece and it strikes you a certain way, and I think my initial inclination when I was starting to edit pieces was to try to think too hard about what was happening and what, and really it was a matter of just like how am I responding as a listener and right. being very attuned to that and kind of trusting that experience. But it's not just that because, I mean, I can, I feel that I can respond as a listener, but I don't always have ideas. I mean, do you feel a responsibility to have a solution if you say this isn't working and then you come up with three alternatives for them, for an editor? Uh, I mean, do you feel like that's part of your responsibility? Because I, I can listen as a listener, but um, I, I have no ideas how to fix anything. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, I think I, I, have, I have certain strategies, I think, for thinking about how to fix things. And, and one thing I think is if it's very clear for me how to fix, to clear to me how to fix something, then fine. And if it's not clear to me, then I feel like there's some art, larger structural issue. I kind of have to step back and think, you know. And there's um, film editors talk about how if like a shot isn't working, look to the previous shot. Mm, so people are getting too. Yeah, well, the, yeah. It's, it's just, in other words, in that case, it's a thing that sets up the part mm. where you're having problems with uh, that may be causing the problems. Go back up the chain. Yeah, and so I think. In, I mean, I think in radio, it's sometimes the same thing. It's like there may be some larger issues. If it's just like, you know, either how the story's defined or what tape you have, or 
you know, I have to reassess some larger things. Yeah. Um, I do feel it's part of the job of the editor to suggest how to, if, that if something's not working, to make a suggestion. Now, maybe that suggestion isn't the final answer, but but I think it's kind of demoralizing to just say to a producer, this isn't working. You know, I don't know why, but it's not working. And then just, <laughs> you go away and fix it. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, because in some ways the, the part of the job is to just like to trigger the next, is like to bump it along to the next process. And so if you just kind of passively stand back, then they're producers kind of less sitting there in the same place they were when they came to you except they know it doesn't work. Did you have something you want to say? Although John? sometimes I think it, that, that it sort of we developed almost a kind of a shorthand or uh, where Deb might say, um, you know, this this here isn't really... I don't, I, maybe we should just lose that because that isn't really doing much for me. <clears throat> and I'll say, um, well, no, that's pretty important because, you know, what? here's why it's important. And then she'll say, well, okay, it doesn't say that, though. <laughs> or, you know, the tape, the tape doesn't get that done, or the way you've set it up doesn't get it done, and so then it's, oh, okay, well, I'll fix that. And then, and then I'll go away and fix it and come back. Um, so there's often, yeah. Right. That kind of thing happens. Right. Well, it, here's, here's the way I've noticed when I've had to be edited, and I'm sure this will say much more about me than it will about the editor, but um, I've noticed certain people that I've loved to edit work with start an edit, I'll read something, and I'll say, this is fantastic. You're a genius. I love it. Okay, page one, line one, let's change everything. And, you know, it's like this tactic whereby they bring you up and, so that they can shoot you down. Um, and I'm wondering, I mean, what kind of, is there an element of it, um, is there an element of that in the, the pairs that we have here at the table? Um, is that an approach that you approve of or not? Is there something to building the confidence of a reporter or a producer before you start going at it or not or what? I know Deb has very strong feelings about this, so I'll ask her first. Well, um, if if it's terrific, I will say, yes, that's terrific. But I, I don't say that a lot. Uh, and I cannot say Remind it. Remind me never to edit with you. <laughs> I, I cannot say it if I don't think that. If right. it's good, I'll say it's good. And to me, good is very high. <laughs> <laughs> and terrific is in another, you know... Stratosphere. So, um, it's more of a. I can't be, say it as something to relax a reporter <laughs> if I don't believe it. These babies, these reporters. You learn with Deb. You learn that even just sort of the nuance with which she, she says, say you've done a read through and you played the tape, and she, with which she says, okay. <laughs> you know, now she says it. That's good. That was a good okay. Um, okay. Now that's, you're in trouble. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you learn to adjust your... But, you know, this is actually maybe a good point to say, and I think, you know, it ought to be said at some point that really, especially for the those of you in the audience who are younger um, or who are independent, um, editor equals good. Now, get yourself an editor. 
this notion that, you know, you're an artist and nobody should touch what you do, forget it. Somebody should. And the, it, is a, it is a tricky thing uh, because you've got to find somebody whose judgment you think is worth something. Um, and that's the big, that's the big sort of sticking point there. But, but find that person and, and, and preferably it's somebody too who isn't just your best friend and whose main function is to pump you up and make you feel good. They need to be able to, right. to, to tell you that something isn't working. And I mean, also I think that it makes you want to earn their, you know, approval more and when you, when you do cut through a lot of the, you know, BS that I was talking about before, um, because when you have someone who's, I don't want to say hard, but just very forthright and honest, it's actually, I feel as a reporter, it's actually a lot easier in some ways, even though I'm contradicting myself, um, because it sets up a situation where you want to do your best for them and you want to work harder. And then when you do get them on your side and you do get the reaction you want from them that you hope you'll get from a listener, it's just that much more gratifying. Um, but at the same time, when we were talk when we met earlier, there were some talk about um, that there are people you absolutely just can't work with for one reason or another. Sensibilities are different, personality conflicts, and what do you do then? Yeah, well, <laughs> um, I, I usually find I haven't found really personality conflicts or such an issue because you're you know people are professionals they're trying to work on something and make it better and if you're trying to make it better too it's like it's more about the work than about how you relate as people I mean some people you like and kind of maybe hit it off with or something but it's you know it's really if you're focused on the work and making the piece better it's, mm -hmm. I mean so for me the, the the frustrating thing is when that process is impeded the process of, of doing the work is impeded by either maybe someone's being resistant in a way or doesn't you know, follow through with certain things in terms of the kind of material they need to get, and you know, I mean, um, but that that can be that can be hard. And there are some people I've worked with um, and had difficult experiences and haven't worked with again um, who've come to the show and then haven't come back. And just will edit with someone else, or just they you part ways? Or? We yeah, usually kind of part ways. Yeah, um, you do them. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's usually mutual. I mean, you can usually. Kind of feel it. Yeah, kind of feel it yeah. on both, both sides. Yeah. But on the other hand, the, the, the really terrific relationships, uh, you know, sometimes it's immediate. Mm -hmm. Like you, you just sort of click as a team and, and you both have, you both share a sensibility and you, you both agree on what's wonderful tape and there's, and, and agree when a piece is finished and there's a sort of sense of rightness. That, that you both feel about a piece. At other times, it develops over time. And I, and I think John and I um, developed our relationship over time to, to a really good working relationship where we, where we are in sync and understand each other. Um, mm -hmm. No, agree? I think that's true, absolutely. And we've talked about this, how, um, say, even just over five years of working together, um, quite a bit that um, just the you know the shape that my first, that I, I, I let's put it this way five years ago I got a lot more okay <laughs> and um, toward the end of that period I'm getting a lot more okay <laughs> which is you know that that we're 
you know, 80% of the way there and we've got some work to do, but that, you know, basically the, the structure of the piece doesn't tend to change a whole lot from my first draft. And yeah. partly because we're talking along the way, but also because I think there's been a little bit of a mind meld. And as I write, I can mm-hmm. sort of imagine, oh, Deb would, no, okay, no, we need to do that. Right. Here's what she'll say about this. And, and on the other hand, I, I know that, well, first of all, I think that John is a beautiful writer. And so I, I very rarely make uh, uh, writing suggestions, copy suggestions, uh, you know, wording suggestions, you know, unless it's something very technical about a lead-in to, to an actuality or something, um, because, because John has a very strong voice of his own, mm-hmm. and that's, that's another whole thing, is how you edit somebody without changing, trying to change their voice. Um, so I just uh, I, I, I leave them alone there because I defer to you know I don't want to change that that terrific beautiful writing style that he has. Emily, the only other thing I would just say is that sometimes I think also you don't like there are kinds of pieces that I wouldn't bring to Ben um, if I was doing a non-journalistic say maybe more dramatic piece I might not bring it to Ben or I think we've done humor on our show and I think. Neither Ben nor I have a particular sense of editing humor. So, like, people always say, don't let Emily listen to it or don't let Ben listen to it. I mean, I don't know if people would. I, I like to think I'm funny. Well, no, it's not even about. It's, it's not about being funny. It's just like. Yeah. It's like. So, there's certain things that I think people edit better than others. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, in a certain sense, I mean, John was saying before that, like, editors see editors as, as your friend. Um, I mean, it sounds. I don't know. Consumers, but in a way, as a producer, you're a consumer of editorial services. You know, this person provides for you, and and there is something that um, about as a producer, if you work with someone, you maybe learn over time um, what that person is is good for and what they can particularly offer you. Maybe in terms of kind of like how their brain works about pieces. Um, you know. Um, I don't know, Emily, if you feel like you've kind of, you know, over time learned to use, you know, how my how my thinking works more in terms of your pieces, or well, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, just like John says, I don't get stressed about the long silence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a and that's question. Why, that's why Joe Richmond, I think, uses both me and Ben for different sensibilities. Yeah, yeah. interesting. <laughs> Um, I, I, I want to get to questions in a few minutes because I can see that there are already people lined up. But, um, you know, I do think that at the beginning of a career or if you do tend to do work that's very personal or if you just um, have not developed a thick skin yet, um, I'm wondering if anybody up here has had the experience of just taking their tape to personally or taking a criticism of an editor too personally, and how you can guard against that um, if you're new to the game or if you are particularly attached to this tape or something is making you very sensitive about hearing someone else, you know, change it or what have you. Emily, I mean, have you ever felt... I'm sure I have. I mean, I'm sure I've totally freaked out and been a total baby, but I mean, I think just like John, you have to, you just have to sort of, I mean, an editor is paying closer attention to you than anyone else in your life is at that moment. They're giving so much to you. I mean, if it's a good thing, and 
you just have to approach it that this is help. And, you know, who, who pays, who gives you that much attention in any aspect of your life? I mean, but. And, and on the other side of that, too, I think as an entity, you need to recognize that people are going to sometimes have an emotional response to it, like, on an immediate basis. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to address the issue later. There may just be kind of a response that comes up and they're frustrated and maybe they're angry because it isn't going how they wanted. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're, that's, that's not, doesn't mean the process is dysfunctional. Sometimes well, you just yeah. have to kind of let that. Eight hours later, you could have a bouquet exactly. of roses. <laughs> a couple Case in point. of like three years ago, I worked on a piece with this woman about stuttering and, um, the reporter had gotten all this tape. She'd gotten great tape and we had like 20 hours of tape and I was like, oh, we're so great, blah, blah, blah. And I played it to Ben and he was like, well, you don't have a piece. Because we had basically followed this kid through a three week kind of clean up your stuttering program. And there was amazing tape. I love that But piece. what Ben said is like, well, so what? And it was, and I, of course I was like, what the hell? We have all this tape. And <laughs> the, what happened was he's like, we have to go back. You have to like go to the kid now. And it was just, it made the piece so much better, you know, to go, I don't know, for six months or a year later and like go back to his home where he was in rural Pennsylvania and sort of, okay, this is the reality of the three-week course. I mean, the three-week course is like, fine, there's stuttering courses. But it just, I mean, it made it so much more interesting. Well, one of the things about that so I probably piece, freaked out. But. One of the things that uh, about that stuttering piece, which was great piece, was that the kid had, um, was an intense, intense stutterer and could barely speak. And after this three, and he started the three week course. I remember because it was such a great piece. He, as he started the three week course, he was having so much difficulty. And as the three weeks went on, he was getting better and better until by the end, you were just so happy because he really made huge strides. And then a year or six months later, he was just had slipped. He was just not doing that well. And it was just such a heartbreak. And, that piece ended where you just really didn't know that the expert had said, you know, sometimes this happens and it doesn't mean that they're not going to continue to get better in the long haul, but maybe not. And you were just so ripped apart by the fact that later on, and I think you're right. I mean, I didn't know that about the piece, but it would have been a completely different piece had you not gone back to him. And it was just such a great piece. Um, but, um, all right, well, let's stop for a second and take a question or two, and then we'll go back. We have some more tape. Ms. McAvoy. Uh, yes. Uh, I work on a project, which is a, a great project. We have a lot of time. I work with a lot of reporters, and I edit uh, several of them. And I wanted to ask you about process, because uh, we always start out with the best of intentions. We articulate very clearly sort of where the piece is going with the, with the knowledge that it could come back differently as the things go on and change. But what I'm curious about is, He'll start out with this great idea, you give the reporter a lot of freedom, and then sometimes what happens is you come down to the wire and they come in with something that just somehow is so different from what your expectations were. And it's very, very hard at that time to begin to ask them to go back or to begin to rework it. There's just not enough time. And furthermore, they're, they think they've done the best they can. You don't. And you need to maintain a relationship with them for the future because you're going to be working with the same team of people down the road. So I'm kind of curious in terms of process, checking in points. Are there moments where I can, you know, work on this in a way that uh, maybe I feel like I'm doing something wrong in that sometimes you start out on the same page and you end up disappointed in the end. It's very disappointing because you're, you're spending all this time and have this great series that you want to sound exceptional. It's not the everyday 
you know, two weeks to finish a piece. It's several months to work on a piece. So I'm curious to know in these long-term projects, how often you check in, at what point are there reassessments? Perhaps I've, I've done something wrong here. Uh, if it's a long-term project, um, I'll usually start with some intensive initial conversations, uh, then maybe not so frequently, you know, not another, then maybe a period of time when they're out tape gathering that I don't hear from them that much, um, but once a week at least, if it's, this is a major project and there, there's no point in, um, in having, being surprised at the very end of the process when there's no way to make changes. So once a week, definitely over the course of, you know, six months or whatever it is, at least. And then maybe when they're sitting down and writing, maybe every day. Did you have a question? Yeah. In terms of the, in terms of the five years for, for John and Deb, you know, you guys are beginning to learn each other's styles and sort of interests. So how do you guard against, I guess, and continue to make sure you're sharp and continue to be sharp because you're growing, you're developing this relationship. How do you not stagnate over those five years as you guys get closer and understand each other's interests more? Do you know, hmm. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you have to do you have to sit back and say, Am I too comfortable? Do you need to get a third pair of ears in at any point? No, I don't I don't think that's a problem. I don't I don't either. No, we're not. We're not bored with each other, <laughs> like any good relationship. Uh, no, I mean, um, no. There's still. I, I think. I think the thing that's actually that's even, that's even, that's really good is that I, I think as we've gotten more comfortable and the, and the, the, the um, there's a there's a really strong element of trust. So that actually, I think we probably work harder. I think I'm more comfortable um, saying. You know, sort of working with Deb and sort of even sort of saying, what about this? You know, I'm not sure. What do you think? And, um, you know, where there's this sort of, where there's this sort of, there's the script and we're these two people kind of working together on it and, and it's not, it's not adversarial. Whereas I think probably in the beginning yeah. it was, it wasn't really, it was never really adversarial, but it was more sort of, I'm coming tense. with my, yeah. to the door with my mouse and do you like it or not? But you can get to a point where you really understand Deb's rhythms. You, you know her expectations as an editor. And so sometimes, at least for myself, I find as a reporter, I'm almost writing to the editor because I know what that editor is going to – I know there are certain sentences I will not be able to get away with I'm, if I'm writing f f for one editor, whereas with another, I know I can totally do this. So I guess that's well, what I'm, well, well, sometimes. Uh, and is that the question? When, I guess, when you get you, to have, a point. Have, have you turned me into a Deb automaton? Or <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just, you're just working your will through me. <laughs> you're just a vessel, John. Well, w but when you get to a point where it's all functioning it really way. smoothly, then what you can do is, is say, let's try something really different this time. And then, boom, you know, you're, you're both in, in new territory. So that keeps it fresh. I mean, I've had experiences as, as a producer. Where I've worked with someone for, you know, a while. And then I got to a point where, um, well, as you said, that I, I knew what they expected. But then I, I kind of started to feel, well, what they expect isn't really so much what interests me as a producer. And then at that point, I think you kind of look to some other 
maybe place area your work or somebody else to work with or something. I mean, that, that does happen sometimes. Um, yes, go ahead. Um, I actually work with Ben and Emily, so just so I wanted to address the thing that you said about comedy earlier. I've been working on comedy pieces for a few years, and that was part of the question, like, do you take this to Emily or do you take this to Ben? And I actually think I've kind of come to the sort of piece where you, the one-on-one um, one relationship doesn't seem to work, where, like, having one editor and one producer on comedy doesn't make the piece stronger. And the thing that I'm finding with it is if I take, if I shop it around and kind of get like a, you know, an average of funny, that that's the best way to move that forward. <laughs> um, so I guess I was wondering if you've run into pieces like that, like or styles of pieces that maybe it's better to have a different kind of setup than just one-on-one. Mm. I, even though I'm not an editor, can I say something? <laughs> um, I, I think I had an experience once where I was doing a piece and I had an editor who was a very confident editor, but at that time we were putting together a pilot for a new show and the pressures of putting together this pilot and knowing how many people were going to hear it, um, I think made her extremely nervous and it was a lot of money. And so I, I had done this piece for her and it was a little bit, it was a kind of offbeat, humorous piece. And she had edited, then she wanted me to show it to somebody else, and then I think that like three or four people, and everybody who heard it kept, had a different sensibility. And by the end, I felt so wrung out. I felt like the janitor was giving me his opinions, and that I couldn't, I, I just, I, you know, was lost. And um, having done a lot of humorous pieces, like for instance, we were talking about Brooke Gladstone, who's got a great sense of humor, she was someone who you could read a humorous piece to and she would like throw jokes in and make it more funny. Mm. And so if you can find someone like that, I mean, I think there's a real danger in having too many editors put their ears on a piece of work. But mm -hmm. for humor, I think you really have to find someone who understands your sensibility and is willing to fight for it and get it on the air. But that's just my right. two cents. I guess I've run into that definitely where you the too many cooks thing on so many different kinds of pieces where because we'll do that at the next big thing we'll pass our pieces around and everybody will listen to them and that can be really confusing and not helpful but this comedy thing has really stuck with me that that was the only way I could really find out because what tickled one person didn't another and you know you, you hear the joke so many times that you get you're really conditioned to them so right. there are always some jokes that I'll always laugh at when I hear something but um, it seems to be I don't know when you know. find someone who really understands uh -huh. and can edit humor well, you have to, you know, adore them and lavish them with bouquets. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I just have to tell one quick story um, because I had an experience very early on. I was working at um, here at BEZ, and it was a long time ago, and I had done one piece for NPR that was a serious piece. It was the first piece I had pitched. And then I moved to D.C. and I had um, I had an idea because I was coming home to visit Chicago and the Oscar statues are made here in Chicago. And um, I had an idea that I wanted to do a story. I had pitched one piece to NPR. It was a serious piece. And so I talked to a young producer at, at NPR about it and he said, sure, sure, sure. And um, that was Ira Glass. And... I had never worked with him. I didn't know him well. I knew he was at NPR, and I knew that um, he was smart, and someone had told me he was funny. And so 
I went home, and I had my tape recorder and equipment, and he called me up the night before I was supposed to go to do the piece, and I was just going to go and, like, do the piece. And he goes, I've got it. And I'm like, you've got what? And he said, I've got, okay, here's what you have to do. You, first of all, I want you to go in, and I want you to stand outside the building, and I want you to do a live-to-tape description of everything you see. And I want you to do it in this voice where you're really close to the microphone and you sound like you're whispering in someone's ear. And I'm like, okay, okay, whatever you say. And so I went and he goes, and then this is what you have to do. I want you to go in and I want you to try and buy one. And I'm like, okay, okay. He said, but you can't offer anything of any value. You have to say, okay, I'll give you a dollar. Then can I have an Oscar? And, and, and I, he goes, and you have to be relentless. I don't want you to let up. I don't care how many times he says no. You have to keep it up, keep it up. And I'm like, okay. And uh, So I go out and I'm standing, I felt like the biggest idiot. I'm standing in front of this factory and people are coming in and out and I'm going, I'm standing in front of this factory. It's a brown building. The birds are humming. And I'm go- and people are like, you know, staring at me. And I go in, and the guy, and I keep saying to the guy, and I, I really felt it was a very uh, weird thing because I wanted to please Ira and do what he had asked me to do, but of course I felt like a big fat idiot. And um, so I kept saying, uh, can I buy one? And, he's, and the guy was this old guy. He's like, no. I said, oh, come on, I'll give you two bucks. And he said, I could give you an Emmy. (laughs) And and I said, you know, no, 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 no. I want an Oscar. And he said, you could be Miss America. And I said, no, I've got to have an Oscar. I'm sorry, you can't have an Oscar. And anyway, so, and, and then... I, I didn't think it had gone very well. I didn't think I had much piece, much tape, because I was looking for this kind of tape, and I brought it back to D.C., and I was like, great, and he's like a sushi chef with the, you know, <laughs> and then, you know, here are the bites that we need, and I wrote the script, and he's like, okay, well, listen, and basically, I felt like, you know, he had pretty much, obviously, you know, he was like this puppeteer, and I just happened to be going like this. But it was such a great experience for me because he had such a clear vision of what this piece was. And I was going to go and go, hi, how are the Oscars made? How did they get to L.A.? Do you really know who's going to win? You know, and, and he had turned it into this, like, totally different piece. And I was so blessed with, like, an editor like who had a sense of humor with a vision and I felt like a pawn and I was so happy to be that pawn, you know? Um, anyway, I want to get to tape, but go ahead. This kind of follows up on what you're saying, just in terms, um, this question might need editing, by the way. Um, <laughs> in term, I'm, I'm a producer-director of audiobooks, so when I'm hired for a project, I have to work with the talent that's given to me and I feel that as a director of that project when I'm working with a talent in the booth that I am their editor but I'm not editing the words I'm editing their presentation when as a vocal coach for air and through the mentor program which you guys should find out about um, and other um, you know coaching that I've done people will send me their tapes and say oh, I want I want to get this on NPR 
Now, the writing might be okay if you were reading it in a book, but it's not written for audio presentation or the, you know, the, the writer is sort of new to the business and wants to sound like all the other NPR, you know, announcers. And I say, you know, this piece doesn't sound like anybody different. Let's make it you. Who are you? And so I feel a lot of times as a vocal coach that I'm editing this person, change their writing so it sounds more like who they are. But when I'm in the booth and the book is already written, again, it's a, it's a team process to try to coach the talent. And sometimes you really bump heads with the talent who might say, no, I think that character ought to be this way. I don't want to tell the talent how to do the character. Sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, I would never have done it that way. But they are determined to do it that way. And I have to sort of say, you know what, you didn't, you didn't get that character. Or that narrator voice sounds different from, from that character. Or that character wasn't consistent. And so I just wonder, when you're, as an editor and a writer, what about, what about the vocalization of the piece? Where is, where is that element of it? And how, how do you, you know, put that, put that into it so that we know that these are different people and perspectives um, in, in the presentation? Hmm. Uh, by vocalization, do you mean how the, how the writing is delivered? And, or? The delivery. Right, the, delivery, the performance about. element of it. Yeah. When you go in the studio to record the pieces that that are written to bring together all the field elements. I, I hate to be a pig here, but I just have to say that as a continuation of that last story of that very first funny piece I did for NPR, um, when I got back to D.C., um, you know, I was used to voicing just pieces, straightforward reads, and I got, I, I've, I've never forgotten this, and I never will, because I, Ira made me come into the studio and for a for a track that was probably um, maybe two minutes max, we were there for almost an hour. And he was like, I, I, I mean, I really, <laughs> you know that scene in broadcast news where she's in his ear and he goes, oh my God, it was like making love. And I mean, it was like, he was, he was talking to me in my headphones and he's like, okay, now I want you to talk like you're whispering. To, to your best friend. Okay, now I want you to, and it was like, and I was talking like this, and it was, and then this. Okay, now I want you to do this, and it was like this intense level of coaching. Of course, you know, I was new, so I was so happy to try and, you know, please him. <laughs> Not to carry the analogy too far, but, um, and, uh, and, you know, it worked well, and I've never forgotten it, and it's informed every single uh, delivery I've ever done, and every coaching, if I've ever been called on to coach people, I remember it um, so vividly, and how much it broadened my idea of what could be done. So directability is an important element of, of oh, this yeah. whole process. If as a talent you go in, or as a writer you go in, and, and you're so stuck on your idea or your presentation, you're not allowing... You're not allowing yourself to be directed. And I've had agents send me talent who, who lie about their experience level. And, and they put together great vocal tapes, but they really can't you know, hold, the, hold the duration. So if, uh, if I'm working with someone who isn't listening to me, how do I, you know, it's that being a psychologist thing. Okay, we've got a deadline. We've got to get this thing done. I don't have nine hours to work with you in the studio. And if you want coaching, that's extra. But, you know, so how do you... Um, I mean, I think you just have to try a lot of different approaches. I mean, yeah, I would agree with Gwen that I think people, contributors who we work with, are sort of most unexpected by how long it will take them to track. I mean, 
You know, sometimes it's 30 minutes, but sometimes it is three or four hours. And it just, I mean, how, how do you do it? Like, everyone, I mean, as Gwen says, it's like whispering. It's like, tell it, t- tell it to me like you're, you know, we're sitting in a bar. Talk to me like you're on the phone. I mean, we often abandon our scripts. If you're reading a book, mm-hmm. it's harder. You can't abandon right, the script. Right, you can't change that. You know, you can say this isn't how people talk. You wrote this like how people write. But, yeah. but, but if okay. you're doing a book, I think you're in a different jam. I think we want to get to as many questions as yeah. we can. Thanks. Um, picking up, Ben made a very good point about trusting your instinct when you initially hear the piece and responding then in the moment. What about the reverse of that? Because I'm sure listening to those pieces you did some years ago, you can hear things that were wrong with them. And I know I always can. Any piece I did, you know, a year on, even six months on, I can hear what's wrong with it. And I can hear it faults. How do you get there? Any tips on getting to that point? That sort of looking back in retrospect when you realize the sort of structural problems, the clumsinesses, all those kind of things that you left in because you just didn't see them at the time. Hmm. Um, Well, it it definitely happens. Uh, I mean, there's a piece that we were talking about playing for today that I saw something that was kind of saw the solution that was... um, was there? I don't know. I mean, I, you just try to do the best you can. Um, I know that's not really a tip, <laughs> but um, um, you, and there's something about relaxing too. I mean, it, when you do it enough, your brain just kind of relaxes, and so it, it, there's 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 space for that to happen for you to see things. You're not you're not listening so intently. I do think that there's a point, though, that there is a point where, um, you know, you could you could always make nips and tucks, and there are always mm-hmm. things that you look back on, and it just gets you every time you hear it. But there is a point at which you know everything has to be has to stop being edited. And I mean, for me, the times when that's happened most, I think, are times when I've had to do work on something on deadline, where we had a piece like that had to be done in like, you know, today. And I listened to it like you know five times over the course of the day with slightly different changes, and you then you start to kind of lose. I think you do. Uh, you can if a piece is kind of has some complicated structural issues. It's it's easy if you go go through again and again and again in a really short time. For me, it's like it's better to give yourself a little room to 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 think and reflect about it. Is too. the question how to catch your errors, kind of? Well, well, it's those errors that only be, I find. They become uh, obvious over the long term because they're like really big things you didn't notice at the time. I mean, this is just, and this is sort of based and practical, but I also think we, I don't know if you've had this, but we fall into patterns. Like, I know about myself, like, my pieces are too quick. And so it's like you can literally write yourself a little list, like, of these are my problems, and like, have I answered these? I mean, it seems sort of stupid, but in this piece, like, so. Life should all be so easy. These are my problems. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. I mean, I think there's the other there's the other side of that too, which is that I think I mean there. I know a lot of times people will labor over things and you listen to it later, and you're like you you forget even what the issue was in a piece, you know. So. Um, yeah. yeah. Do you have experiences where you're kind of in the trenches and in the thick of it with somebody you're working with, and you give you realize in the middle of it you have given a piece of wrong advice where you've like led reporter a reporter down a certain road and you get to the end of that road and you're like, oh, that like, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that was the wrong thing to do. And what do, you, what do you do in that situation or can you, I mean, is that just sort of one of the things that happens? I'm just curious for a story. Hmm, good question. 
yeah, it happens. And, and you say, you know what? Remember when I told you to do this? I really think that was wrong. And so let's go back to the way it was. And I'm sorry. You just apologize. It's no big deal. But I, again, I, I think I find, <laughs> if I finally do that, do that too much on a piece, or if I, I think then I'll look at it. Yeah. Or not, I mean, if, I, if, if that happens, like, during a piece, basically, then I'll spend some time thinking about, I'll back up and look at the larger issues in the piece. Because I, th- I find if things are just really not clear enough to me so that I'll lead someone down a wrong path, that maybe there are some other larger kind of issues that, in the piece that need to be addressed, you know, when things are just not kind of specifically clear enough. Stephen. Um, editing is a gift, and certainly uh, the people at up there have it. Um, I'd like to have you all reflect on strategies for when a producer or a reporter is working with an editor who may not be gifted. Um, because they're, you know, I mean, you work with reporters and producers who aren't necessarily all that gifted, and you've got strategies. And certainly people, um, you know, all of us have experience working with people who take your piece apart and you redo it, put it back together after two weeks or Ten days or two hours or whatever, and it's the same thing you started with, which is a waste of time. So, survival skills, survival tips. Well, <laughs> uh, well, the first one, of course, is to try not to work with that person again. I mean, there are bad editors, um, but you don't have a choice. Um, hmm. Well, I mean, as a, as, yeah, as a producer, I mean, I've, I've found at times that it's. It can be useful to like argue your point. You now, if you're a producer and you're really convinced that something is what you're doing, there's a good reason for it, and it really helps make the piece better. Sometimes, you know, editors will respond to. I mean, that kind of goes both ways. The persistence, I think. You know, if you can really make your case well, then you know people sometimes do respond to that as editors. There's also the possibility of, uh, and I. Uh, of like the underground where you're assigned to an editor but you call someone else who you respect a little bit more maybe and you play them your thing and you get a pre-edit so that you you know you're not paying those that people but that's what a lot of friends and people in the room can do this room can do for you um and i certainly have been guilty of that before and then there's the time-honored trick of putting in something in the piece that you know the edit- that you know is bad, so that the editor will take it out or do something with it, and then feel satisfied that they've made a major change. <laughs> I'm not saying do that, but you know, Sandy Dillon. Well, I think part of just briefly, if it, I think part of the answer too, or at least sometimes the answer can be that. Uh, is 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 one of perspective, uh, and that this is not one hopes that the the one and only and last piece you will ever do, and if this you've got stuck with this dumb editor, in this instance, sometimes you know, and maybe especially if it's on a deadline, you just gotta do what they tell you to do, get the thing on the air, and then try not to work with that person the next time, and and uh, put it down as. Uh, you know, because I think that's part of too. It, uh, the other point I want to make, sort of the corollary to uh, having an editor editor is good, is uh, having a thick skin is good, and having perspective is good. And if you're writing a grant and applying for a grant, you should put a money line in to pay the editor that you have in mind what they deserve, and get who you want to work with, and pay them well. 
And once you've worked with someone good, it's always good to keep that in mind. And one more thing also, it just behooves producers to obviously get editings. Like you have to, you end up having to self-edit so much, obviously. And because you don't have as, you may not have as much time with Deb and Ben. But when you're working on a piece, I mean, I literally think you sort of put on your producing antenna and then you switch to your editing antenna. Right. And it's just totally different when you hear your piece that way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I often feel, especially if I'm working on a longer piece, and especially if it's the kind of piece that John and Deb played where you're trying to personify an issue through a family or through an individual, I feel in the beginning of the process anyway more like a casting director than a journalist. You know, you're going around and I you know, spend sometimes weeks or even more. Who is the right person? It could be, uh, it could be something you know far away or right close to your home. But there's a point at which I think you get to the point of no return. And you have to make a choice. And I wonder for those of you who you know struggle with this, how do you how do you go about the casting process? And at what point do you feel like? You know what? It's not perfect. It's not, no, nobody's perfectly representative of a larger issue, but we just got to go with it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this answers the question in any kind of general way, but the, the, it, when I was describing before the conversation where Deb and I decided to kind of take Marsha and her sons and go this way, that was also, as I remember it, that was also actually the, the moment where we really even decided for sure that she was, that she was in. Because we were sort of following her and kind of, eh, she's not all that great in some ways, and she's not doing the diary thing. And um, <clears throat> but it was, it was sort of like, a, we take her off in this direction, and b, that that's going to make her work. Um, so just that that anecdote. Um, geez, I don't know. That's right. I mean, you just you, um, it, and it depends so much on the kind of piece you're doing. Often you're meeting. You're looking for characters if it's some kind of social issue, you know, uh, looking for somebody who's dying uh, in hospice, for example. I'll take a recent example of this, where you're, you're going through some sort of institution. Will you introduce me to somebody? Uh, and, and then, well, how much leeway do you have to go meet somebody and say, well, actually, you're not quite right for the part? <laughs> um, it can be very, it can be a very sensitive thing. You just, you, you, you do your best. And, and, but, but I always, I do, when I'm in that phase of things and I'm meeting people, or just calling people on the phone who are in some certain predicament or some situation, um, I'll often, uh, I'll be very upfront and just say, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm in the early stages of this, of this documentary. I'm looking for stories to tell. And I'm just calling a lot of people and just trying to meet some people. Uh, and I wondered if I could just have a little conversation with you. And then you may have that chat and at the end of it say, you know, I, re- I really appreciate this. Um, you know, as I said, I'm I'm early on. I'm going to call some other people, and you may or may not hear from me again. Yeah, I think that's a great way I, to do it. I love that process of doing it with a producer or a reporter, of, of, you know, looking at the cast of characters and discussing them. And because, like I said earlier, you know, the fact that I haven't seen them, um, you know, I'm, I may be hearing different things. Uh, a long time ago, Ira... Uh, and I worked on a series where he went into this high school for six months and um, followed a group of kids around. And um, and there was this one girl that he just wasn't going to use because he didn't like her. And and I fell in love with her. And 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 it was it was a matter of us explaining to each other. Ira didn't like her because he thought she was kind of shallow. And and I loved her because I thought I heard um, insecurity in her voice. And you know. 
So that kind of discussion can be really good. Um, we are completely out of time and have overrun our time a little bit because we got a late start and we want to get ready for the next session. So thank you very much. And-